What if saying American lives matter was considered a hate crime by the government? Um, or here's a good one. What if you had a, what if you had a meme on your phone that was, let's say slightly critical of Dylan Mulvaney? What if, what if that was a crime? What if that was something that you could actually be prosecuted for? Well, if you think that's ridiculous, Welcome to Ireland, because this otherwise free country is now seriously considering and voting on legislation that would make things like this hate crimes, which could get you prosecuted and even potentially landed in jail. And what we're going to discuss today is what led up to this, because there's a lot of reports on it, but we're actually going to go behind these superficial reports coming out of the BBC and everywhere else. We're going to talk about what actually led up to the riots that we've seen in Ireland, the comments from Conor McGregor, and we're going to show that some of this might be a little bit closer to home than most Americans should be comfortable with. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, powered by Good Ranchers. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't already, we would love for you to join our community chat, which you can find the link to in the description of this episode. We have almost a thousand members. We're about to cross that mark. Not too far. It won't take much longer if you join today. But anyway, we'd love to see you there, and I'll hand it back to Nick. All right. As always, I am your host, Nick Freitas. Unfortunately, not with us today because she's sick, probably of me, is my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, but she will be back soon. But we do have, we do have as some kind of consolation to her absence. Unfortunately, we do have Christian, Christian Hines, our, our resident historian, <laughs> political prognosticator, and mostly benevolent warlord in training. How are you doing, Christian? I am currently panicking uh, mildly because I have so much stuff that I have to get done before I fly out to the UK tomorrow. Yeah, to get your degree for your, your, your master's degree in history. Yeah, I know. I've, I've, I, we've spent what a year railing against the media and academia, and here I am about to go, you know, be handed a degree by academia. That's right, Christian. So, what a traitor! And in the UK too, <laughs> we fought a war with these people, Christian. Yeah, they, well, I mean, this is relevant today, isn't it? It's not yeah. the UK; it's in Ireland. But I mean, quite frankly, I think that some of the stuff we're going to talk about today applies to other countries in Europe, not just Ireland. Oh yeah, there's, we're we're going to get to that. So I I will be gone from the first to I believe the twelfth or eleventh, whatever. The the next Monday is. Um, so I'll probably be missing two episodes. I, I timed it intentionally. So that way I'm only going to be missing two episodes, even though I'm gone for like a week and a half. So yeah. all right, you guys will have to, to deal without me. I hope the episodes bomb. <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> and then of course, our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. That's right. Thank you, Nick. All right. Well, let's get into it. So first things first, we've been watching the news. Um, obviously a lot of, a lot of Horrible things have been going on in Ireland right now, um, which is, I mean, sad for a number of reasons. Not not the, I mean, I'll tell you right now, I, I've, I've been to Ireland. I went to Ireland when I was 18 and we visited over there and I loved it. I mean, you want to talk about an absolutely beautiful country as well as a country that I felt was very, very friendly toward uh, Americans when we were over there. But we, we had a great time. I just fell in love uh, with the people and just the, the natural beauty uh, of the island. But they, they're going through some troubles right now. And we're going to we're going to talk about a little bit about that. So no pun intended. They're going through some troubles. Right uh, yeah. Now. Oh, gosh, I was not making a, I was not making a Northern Ireland reference there. All right. So what happened? All right. Well, 
Um, about a week ago, five people, three children and two adults, were injured during a stabbing incident near a school in Dublin on Thursday, according to multiple reports. So we're actually reading an article from the day this took place. The stabbing took place near an elementary school in Parnell Square East just after 1.30 p.m. when a man allegedly attacked the adult woman first before stabbing the children. The woman and one of the five children, a five-year-old girl, suffered serious injuries. Go ahead and scroll down a little bit. Okay. According to local reports, eyewitnesses said the suspect was wielding a large knife and was eventually tackled by passersby before police arrived on the scene and arrested him. So huge shout out to the people that actually saw this taking place and took action. All five victims were transported to different hospitals across Dublin, including Children's Health, Ireland and Crumlin and the Mater Hospital, according to RTE, Ireland's semi-state broadcaster. A motive for the attack is unknown and police are understood to be ruling out terrorism. All right. So this was the initial report that took place. Let's go ahead and go to the the next article. All right. So for those of us that were watching the United States, you know, we were all of a sudden riots are breaking out in Ireland over this and go ahead and scroll up a little bit. Cause I want people to see the picture here for those, those that are watching. Um, these were some pretty serious riots that took place in Dublin and uh, we can go ahead and scroll back down. It says police in Ireland arrested 34 people in relation to riots that swept through Dublin on Thursday when cars and a bus were burned following a stabbing earlier in the day. So this was the same day. Around 500 people wreaked havoc in the streets with about a dozen stores looted while rocks and bottles were thrown at crowd control officers equipped with helmets and shields. An empty tram train that had been left at a stop had its windows smashed and were also set on fire. The violence began after rumors circulated that a foreign national was responsible for a stabbing outside a school on Thursday afternoon. The suspect, who is understood to be of Algerian descent, is a naturalized Irish citizen, attacked three children with a knife outside an elementary school in the city center just after one. 30 p.m. A five-year-old girl was seriously injured while the two other children, a boy and a girl, suffered minor injuries. So what would, again, if you're just reading this report and you haven't been tracking what's going on in Ireland, what this report kind of leads you to believe is that, you know, a bunch of people kind of jump to conclusions, you know, you know, by, you know, governed by um, anti-immigrant sentiment and started writing around Dublin. All right, so th this is kind of like if you're if you're reading this for the first time, you don't know any of the context. This is probably the conclusion that you're you're coming to, right? And and maybe not, um, maybe not based off of a, a lack of evidence, but this is this is what you got to go on, and so this is where you're coming to. Let's go ahead and look at the next um, article that comes up here. And uh, this is when uh, Conor McGregor gets involved. So it goes, former UFC uh, UFC champion Conor McGregor, and you need to understand something that like Conor McGregor is popular worldwide, but. Conor McGregor is super popular in, in Ireland. All right. So uh, imagine, you know, one of the biggest stars you can possibly think of in the United States opining on something. Uh, the difference is I think people have a little bit more respect for Conor McGregor in Ireland than we have for a lot of our stars in the U.S. He goes, before former UFC champion, Conor McGregor voices displeasure with Irish law enforcement and others in leadership positions for their handling of the recent stabbing incident in Dublin. McGregor argued that his home country is in danger due to the crime that, uh, and <clears throat> excuse me, due to the crime and that official Officials have not properly worked to remedy it. McGregor was born in Ireland. Yeah, we know that. Earlier this week, the mixed martial arts star took to social media to demand that Irish authorities condemn rioters, right? So he's condemning the rioters, who took to the streets after numerous, uh, after rumors circulated that a foreign national was responsible for the stabbing outside a school in Dublin. The BBC has since reported that the suspect is believed to be a male Irish citizen in his 40s. Again, he's of Algerian descent, but he is an Irish citizen. Scroll down. As of Friday... 
An estimated 34 people have been arrested in relation to the riots. This is a grave danger among us in Ireland that should never be here in the first place. And there has been zero action done to support the public in any way, shape, or form with this frightening fact. Not good enough, McGregor posted on X, the company formerly known as Twitter. Irish Justice Minister Helen McEntee said that those who rioted did not do so for immigration purposes and labeled them as thugs and criminals. There was a protest earlier that was a generally peaceful protest, but a separate group then came with an intention to seek and wreak havoc. Scroll down. Irish Prime Minister Leo uh, Vardikar said that the country's capital had endured two attacks, one on innocent children and the other on society and the rule of law. These criminals did not do what they did because they love Ireland. They did not do what they did because they want to protect the Irish people. They did not do any of it out of a sense of patriotism. However, Ward Vardikar told reporters on Friday morning, they did so because they're filled with hate. They love violence. They love chaos. And they love causing pain to others. McGregor seemed to dismiss the statements from the Irish Prime Minister and other officials announce our plan of action what are we waiting for your statements of nothing are absolutely worthless to solving the issue mcgregor wrote in his separate social media post uh, mcgregor also suggested the country was at war um go ahead and uh, go to the next article so this gives you kind of an idea of, of how things were progressing from the day it happened to the riots to various people from politicians to you know popular uh, irish figures um, folding. Now, this is the this is an article that's interesting because it's written by the Guardian. The Guardian's a pretty far left wing publication out of the UK, and um, but was interesting is they were they were talking to some of the people that were actually engaged in, in the protests and uh, some that were involved in the in the writing as well. And I, I want to read you this this one part specifically because I think this is going to provide you know again you saw the you saw the thing from the prime minister which they said the rioters were not motivated by anything other than a love for chaos and violence and hatred and looting. The unfolding scenes, in contrast, were legitimate havoc, a corrective to a political establishment impervious to previous protests over rising numbers of asylum seekers, said Samantha. When we do things peacefully, we get ignored. She had left her five-year-old at home without dinner in order to join the revolt, she said. I'm out here fighting for my country. We shouldn't have to do this. Others echoed the refrain, to make Ireland safe, wreck the capital. It's not right, but it had to be done. The government is not listening, said one man in his 20s, a bystander rather than a looter. This isn't against foreigners. We were the first immigrants. Immigrants are driving our buses, cleaning our hospitals. We need them, but they need to be vetted. Ireland's demography has been transformed in recent decades as a booming economy reversed the historical flow of immigration. A fifth of the five million people now living in Ireland were born elsewhere. A recent increase in refugees from Ukraine and other countries fueled a backlash amid concern over a housing shortage and straining public services. The number housed by the state jumped from 7,500 in 2021 to 73,000 in 2022. Amid the destruction on Thursday night, there was some linguistic nuance with non-national, usually preferred to foreigner, and unvetted or unregulated, preferred to illegal, and an aversion to the label far right. So this gives you a little bit more insight into, because again, you, you've got politicians coming out there saying that, oh, this is just a love of hatred and chaos. Uh, okay, you know, look, I, I don't I don't approve of people burning businesses and looting private property in order to make a political statement. Right. Like, I don't I don't support that. I don't approve of that. I don't think that's good. I don't think you destroy the livelihood of somebody that built a business and is just trying to, like, feed their family in, in order to make a political statement. But this idea that this was just a bunch of random people that took to the streets because they were just, you know, upset or motivated by hate. I don't think that really tells the story. 
It reminds me a little bit about when George Bush said, well, the reason why they hate us is because of our freedom. Well, look, I don't think there was anything legitimate or justified about Osama bin Laden or Al Qaeda or ISIS or anything. I think these were horrible terrorist organizations that I actually dedicated a significant part of my life to fighting. But I also think it doesn't do any service when politicians get up and don't actually share any of the actual motivations for why somebody is doing something. All right. So again, I don't think motivations justify the actions of burning down a small business and looting it. But I also think it's a little ridiculous to say, oh, well, that's all that motivated them is, is looting or rioting or, or, you know, violence. Go ahead and go to the next. Um, so, I, so now what you're starting to see here. Got a quick comment from Kathleen. She said, nobody over here in Ireland can speak freely. You're punished if you do. We are sick and tired of what our beautiful country has become. It was once one of the safest countries. It definitely is not now. So, and that's, that's interesting because what I, one of the things I want to get to is I, I want to show a couple of things. First of all, there have been a ton of protests in Ireland from, I think, starting in, in 2021. I'm going to try to bring it up here real quick. Um, 2021 to 2023, um, or excuse me, yeah, to this year, to this year. Um, yeah, I'm just talking about right now. All right. And what's, what's interesting about it is that when you look at it, it's 2022, 2023, Irish, um, and in Wikipedia it says anti-immigration protests. But this is, just to give you an idea, the East Wall protest, the East Wall protest committee, the Sandwich Street attack, the Lannister, the, uh, Lannister House protest, other parts of Dublin inner city, kill protests, arson threat, uh, German God protest, Balium protest, I apologize for the pronunciation, Ashtown attack and protest, uh, Finglas protest, uh, Ballybrack uh, incidents, attack on a counselor, Ridge Hall protests and fire, November 23, uh, Dublin riot, which is the one that just took place. So there, there's been a lot of protests going on and there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of Irish citizens that have expressed concern over a couple of things. One of the primary concerns is the fluctuation, the, the amount of people coming into Ireland within a relatively short period of time and what that, the impact that that has on things like housing or the economy, because obviously when you're talking about a nation of, of 5 million people, that's relatively small. To give you an idea, Virginia has something like 8.4 million people, All right? So Ireland population wise is, is smaller than Virginia. Um, and when you have this significant an influx where we're fully 20% of the population um, are, are immigrants to the country, that's significant, especially if it happens in a relatively short period of time, which it has in Ireland. We're, we're not talking about a, a gradual increase over you know, centuries or decades. We're, we're talking about almost all at once. And to illustrate that point, let's look at what's going on here. And this comes from CSO.ie. It's, it's basically the census of population. Um, Figures and figure 4.4, which is what we're looking at right here for everyone that's listening on audio. It's population groups usually resident and present in the state with the highest actual change since 2016 by place of birth. So this is from 2011 to 2022. And here's what you see when you look at this. So immigrants from India, it was uh, 20,000 in 2011, and then it was about 24,000 uh, in 2016. But as of uh, 2022, it's it's what is it? 60,000. Uh, 
Brazil in 2022, it shot up to about 40,000. Romania is probably at about 42, 43,000. Uh, Ukraine, which has been almost overnight, is about 15,000. And Moldova, Republic of Moldova, is also about uh, probably about 15,000. And and it's important to understand that a, a significant portion of this has all taken place in, in 2021, 22, um, and, and now 23. Since so. 2016, which was less yeah. than technically still less than eight years ago, the number of Indians moving into Ireland have tripled. Yeah. From 20,000 to 60,000. Yeah. And what, and what you see, and, and we're going to get into this a little bit more on, on where kind of the frustration is coming from, you know, Irish people is and again, when you, when you actually allow them to articulate it, it's, you'll see people saying like, we don't have a problem with immigration, but there has been a massive influx in a relatively short period of time without sufficient time to properly vet people before they immigrate into the country and without taking into consideration how it potentially affects the overall economy. Now, again, one of the, one of the arguments that you'll hear from people is that immigration is a net positive for an economy. And in many cases that can be true. Um, and, and you see some of the people that were protesting saying, look, we're not against immigration, but there, there has to be a process which actually makes sense for Ireland. And a lot of the response or the, or the way that I'm interpreting a lot of people from Ireland feel and for the people watching from Ireland, please correct me if I'm wrong, but they feel like they've been bringing this up and they've been bringing it up in peaceful protests that, look, this is a problem and nobody's listening. And, and here's a point I want to bring out because, again, I don't support violent protests. I especially don't support protests which are damaging private property in order to make a political statement. I don't support that. But I pointed this out in the United States. When January 6th happened, I came out and I said, look, for anybody that forced their way into the Capitol, engaged in violence, engaged in vandalism, engaged in theft, engaged in intimidation, you broke the law, and I don't support your efforts to do that. Now, there was a lot of people that were at the Capitol on January 6th that never engaged in any sort of illegal activities. We're now starting to find out that some of the people that were arrested were arrested for things that probably didn't match anything that they actually did in the Capitol. But why do I bring this all up when we're talking about Ireland? Because one of the things I pointed out, I think on like January 7th, it's still up on Facebook if anybody wants to look at it, was I pointed out that I don't support people using, resorting to these sort of behaviors in order to try to achieve political objectives. But I will point out that the left wing is famous for allowing violent protests, vandalism to take place, not just within the United States, but in European countries as well, Right. And, and then they tell everyone that stands up and says, hey, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. Well, well, you should have listened. Well, now, now we're engaging in violence. Maybe, maybe CHOP in Seattle is going to become the summer of love. So when the left riots, burns, set things on, you know, sets things on fires, loots stores, engages in acts of violence, not just against the police, but also against civilians, the response we got from the left a lot was, well, these are mostly peaceful protests. And, and this is just a byproduct of years of oppression and, and, and not listening. And then all of a sudden, when it comes, all of a sudden, when other people say, well, I guess this is just the way we protest now. I guess this is the way that you make your government respond. And they do it. All of a sudden, the same left-leaning politicians that were more than happy to give a pass when they supported the sort of riots that were going on. Right. Like Kamala Harris actively raising money to get people out of jail for engaging in violent activity. Right. 
all of a sudden when it's turned on him, they're like, I can't believe this is happening. They turn into the biggest pearl clutchers on the planet. And the, the thing that I, I, the point that I made early on was what did you expect? If you are not willing to tell people that you agree with that this is inappropriate behavior and that this is not the way to do it, then don't be surprised when the other side figures out, well, I guess this is just the way we do it. In addition to that, when people are bringing up legitimate concerns and you immediately brand them as far right, or you immediately brand them as anti-immigrant or racist or sexist or bigots, when you immediately do that as your first course of action, rather than actually try to understand, do people have a legitimate concern here? Are there legitimate crime concerns? Are there legitimate cultural concerns? Are there legitimate economic concerns? When you just dismiss all of that and brand everyone you might disagree with as being a racist or a bigot, and then you tell them that there's going to be no mechanism for them to peacefully you know, adjudicate their concerns, well then, yeah, people are prone to actually pick up violence as an alternative. So maybe politicians, maybe what you should do is not immediately engage in demagoguery and, and completely lambasting anybody that might have a problem with your policy. It is possible. It, hear me out, progressives. It is possible for someone to have a problem with your, your political policies or philosophy without being a racist or a bigot or a sexist. It could be that they have legitimate concerns and maybe you should treat them like human beings and actually listen to them instead of just immediately dismissing them. Somebody tweeted yesterday that the fact that the Irish government is now considering now, now granted the graffiti is, is one thing, right? So, yeah. so graffitiing something is an act of vandalism, yeah. but to call that a hate crime is a lot different than saying that's petty vandalism. Yeah. Right. And, and, that's what happened, right? So somebody graffitied, you know, Irish lives matter on what, like a dumpster or something like that. I mean, that. it was going up in, I think, in multiple places. Okay. But yeah. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it wasn't like the authorities were going out there saying, this is vandalism, this is graffiti. Yeah. No, they were saying this is a hate crime. Yeah. That's a whole nother level. Somebody pointed out on Twitter that the fact that the Irish government is saying that the phrase Irish lives matter yeah. in Ireland. Yeah. Spray painted by Irish citizens. Again, yeah. say whatever you want about the spray painting. Yeah. Yes, you can argue that that should be yeah. criminalized in the form of, of vandalism. But to call that a hate, a hate crime is so different than to say that it's vandalism. And the fact that the Irish government is, is calling this phrase a hate crime is really, I mean, that is a clear-cut sign that this country has been conquered. Well, let's look at, I want to look, I want to go to this next article because this, I think, provides some insight for that. So the Republic of Ireland's police chief has blamed rioting Dublin City Center Thursday on a lunatic hooligan faction driven by a far-right ideology. Disorder broke out hours after three children and a school care assistant were stabbed outside a nearby primary school. Ireland prides itself on its hospitality, and they, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to try to say that, but it's basically Gaelic for 100,000 welcomes. So what is driving this far-right movement? So keep in mind, when the BBC reports on this, it's not let's determine whether or not this is an accurate depiction of the people that are writing. It's just, well, the police chief says that that's what's going on. And BBC is very, very happy to simply repeat it. By the way, BBC, right? State sponsored media. Okay. Ireland. Okay. So while the answer to that is complicated, the best place to start is almost two centuries ago where people started to leave Ireland with hopes of better opportunities elsewhere. Give me a break. They're honestly going to say this, this whole, well, this is complicated, but it starts two centuries ago. All right. 
Migration is featured prominently in the story of Ireland. People have left the island in their millions, the majority fleeing poverty and famine, others for their own reasons. The Irish were among the huddled masses who glimpsed the Statue of Liberty on their way to Ellis Island in New York and the start of a new American life. They also immigrated to other countries in huge numbers, particularly Great Britain and Australia. Immigration was, until relatively recently, just a fact of Irish life. But in the last 20 years or so, that has changed massively, beginning with EU enlargement and more recently, immigration from India, Brazil, the Philippines, Nigeria, and other countries around the world. Here's one thing I want to point out that I think is a very, very important distinction. When they talk about where did the Irish immigrate to by the millions, the United States, Great Britain, and Australia, all of these are countries with relatively similar cultural backgrounds and histories with respect to the Irish, right? The, the cultural norms in Ireland are not drastically different from the cultural norms in, in other Anglo, Anglo, or Anglo countries, right? So you, you go to the United States, primary immigration in the United States, especially early on and when the Irish came, was essentially English and German. It was Western European, right? So there, there was shared cultural components with respect to religion, even though you had obviously major differences between Protestantism and, and Catholicism, but it was still Christian religion. You, you still had similar concepts, which were motivated by, you know, Judeo-Christian values. Um, but again, there was, there was still a great deal of similarities. That's not to say that there weren't important distinctions between these cultures. There obviously are, um, but it's, it's not a complete departure, right? It's not, it's not radically different. Now, when you look at the sort of immigration that's been taking place into Ireland, India, Brazil, the Philippines, and Nigeria, you could certainly make the argument that, okay, there's, that, is a, that is a far different cultural immersion that's actually taking place. Now, I don't mean to imply by any of this that that is in and of itself a bad thing. I don't think it is. Uh, one of the things I love about the United States is that th there, there is a great deal of ethnic diversity and there is a great deal of you know, traditions which, which have infused themselves within, to, within American culture. But one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm very convinced of is that the idea of multiculturalism, which is to say that there are multiple culturals operating within an environment and no one culture is, is dominant in the sense that there is shared commitment to certain cultural principles. So one of the things that has been, I, I think, special about the United States is that a lot of the things that are culturally relevant to the United States, things like individual liberty, personal responsibility, um, a, a combination of rugged individualism combined with a strong sense of family and community, these are these are cultural um, ideas which can be embraced by anyone, right? They're they're not they're not so heavily rooted in a particular ethnicity um, or, or creed that somebody else coming from a different place that may dress differently or may have different foods or different traditions can in, embrace and thrive along with those those concepts. But there's this idea on the left that for any sort of culture, especially if that culture is, is associated with, with Western ideals for that to be dominant is a bad thing. It is a, it is a representation of oppression. What's amazing is that immigration in the reverse has never talked about in that way. For instance, if I was to immigrate to India tomorrow, I would expect that I was immigrating to their culture. I would respect the fact that their culture has certain norms, certain traditions, certain ideas, certain religious beliefs that are different from my own. Now, does that mean I would completely abandon everything I grew up with and everything I believe? No, of course not. But I would also not have some sort of absurd, unrealistic expectation that the country I was immigrating to had to fundamentally change the nature of its own character in order to cater to me. 
right? And so that's the difference. That's the difference. When you have two cultures, which are now coming into close proximity with one another, now living with one another, the question will always be if there is any, if there is um, differences which are existential or fundamental, which culture actually provides the response for that country. And we used to always believe that, well, if you have a country, this is ever since like the peace of Westphalia. If you have a country and you have certain norms and traditions within that country and someone immigrates to it in a free country, we certainly allow you and we certainly in, in, you know, encourage you to, to keep those aspects of your, of your culture uh, with you and, and to incorporate those into the, the larger fabric, if you will, of, of what that country is. But this idea that now you get to replace the cultures of the people that actually live in that country, no, that is not a thing. And, and there's nothing wrong with people saying that should not be a thing because I guarantee you it wouldn't work that way in reverse and it shouldn't, it wouldn't work that way in reverse and it shouldn't. And so the point that I'm trying to make out here is that again, when you have cultures that are significantly different with, and, and by culture, here's what I mean. I think Daniel Bell came up with this definition and I like, it. he goes, culture is society's attempt to come up with a coherent set of answers to the existential questions that we face throughout our lives. So culture can mean everything from economic traditions. It can be traditions of dress or behavior or mannerisms. It can be um, family traditions. It can be marital traditions. Um, it can be religion. It can be political traditions. It can be any, any number of the agricultural conditions, um, the sort of food you eat. All of those things bring up culture. And there's certain things which can mold very easily with a culture. And then there's other things which clash within a culture. And what I have found that a lot of the, what a lot of the, the left seems to be pushing is this idea that if, if the West insists that in those countries which have been created by the West, that we have certain cultural norms that we want to protect and preserve because we think they're essential to the well-being of our country, we're not allowed to believe that. That's racism. And what's important to understand is that it isn't racism. Because you can be of any race, of any ethnicity, and adopt cultural values or norms, which maybe you grew up with, maybe you didn't grow up with. But it's not racist in and of itself to say, I want to protect my traditions and way of life and systems. And I'm, and I'm very welcoming to people that also appreciate those traditions and systems and want to be a part of it and want to work within it. But I'm going to be skeptical of people that are coming in that want to fundamentally change those traditions and systems or see themselves as being openly hostile to those traditions or systems. There's nothing unusual or unreasonable about that. And I'm tired of politicians, especially leftist politicians, suggesting that there is. Because the big question I want to ask leftist politicians is, okay, once you've torn down the traditions that you think are so oppressive, what are you going to replace them with? Marxism. Nothing? Or do you have your own ideas? <clears throat> okay, we've got a, a super chat here. Uh, former Wokey White, what are your thoughts on linguistic racism? I was called a racist for saying she was changing the definition of raci racism to fit her worldview. Since they have a master's degree, they knew. Excellent question. So here's what you need to understand about the, the new left-wing um, definition of racism. Racism used to be, I'm just, I'm going off of memory here. Racism used to be defined as someone that had um, a, a bigoted hatred towards somebody uh, or a sense of uh, inferiority or superiority towards someone based off of their race, 
right? So if you fundamentally believe that it, that an individual was inferior or superior based off of the race, that was a racist sentiment. That was how we defined racism. Racism now, the, the left has attempted to redefine it as essentially a question of power struggle. So if you are in a position of power, you have the capability of being a racist. But if you're not in a position of power, you don't have a capability of being a racist. And so you, therefore you can't be a racist and understand something. You could be incredibly powerful, but it doesn't matter. Right. So, for instance, uh, people that say that if you are uh, minority status in the United States, you can't be racist because you don't have sufficient power and they never quite define what sufficient power is. Right. So they say you can't be racist. Now, the question that I have posed to people before that have that have used this as the new definition of racism, I've said, OK, Let's say you took an incredibly racist white person in the United States, right? And, and I'm going to concede for a moment that you believe that the United States is a, is a racist country. So you take that white racist and you transplant them to Beijing, China, where they now have, where they're now a minority. They now have no political power. They now have no economic power. They now have no social status. According to your definition of racism, they've stopped being a racist now. They're no longer capable of racism because you've transplanted them from a position where you say they have a great deal of power to a position where now they don't have any power. Does that make sense to you? And they, and they'll they'll do mental gymnastics trying to come up with some sort of justification because none of this is rooted in intellectual consistency. James Lindsay points this out all the time. The issue is never the issue. The issue is the revolution, right? And so... This is all about power structure. And if they put you in a, in a press category or an oppressor category, if you're in a press category, you can't be a racist. If you're in a oppressor category, you are a racist no matter what you do. And here's one nuanced position that I want to take on this that I think is very important. If you were a minority that grew up in an environment where you did suffer from institutional racism, where you did suffer from systemic racism, and the people imposing that racism were all of a particular race. So let me give you an example. If you, were, if you grew up under Jim Crow in the United States, where the legal system and the social system and the economic system were deliberately manipulated to put you at a disadvantage because of your skin color. I'm not talking about nuanced things because of your skin color. And every time you experienced racism, it was at the hands of a white person. You would very logically and reasonably and understandably grow up with, with a, at, at the bare minimum, a skepticism toward white people. So that when you met a new white person, you would assume that they were going to treat you in a racist manner until they demonstrated that they were not. The difference between that and racism is if you allow your experiences to convince you that anybody of a particular race is automatically inferior, regardless of their own character or actions, that's racism. If, on the other hand, you have been exposed to a situation or circumstances where that has been your experience, it is not unreasonable or racist for you to view people with a certain degree of skepticism. And so I think it's important to make that distinction. Like, I understand that exists, right? I, I know people who I, I'm very good friends with who grew up and remember that time and said, yeah, Nick, for the longest time, I, I was skeptical, you know, but I don't think I'm a racist. I'm like, no, you're not because you're someone that can see past that. But by the same token, you, you had circumstances which caused you to be reasonably skeptical. 
And so it's important that we make that distinction. It's important that we make the distinction between someone that says, look, this has been my experience and, and I don't want I don't believe this about everybody, but this has been my experience versus someone that has just decided that if you're this particular skin color or you're this particular race or you're this particular ethnicity, you're a bad or inferior person, right? Those are two different things. And I think we should make that distinction. Um, okay. Let's, let's look at, okay, wait a sec. Let's go back to the other article. I don't want to go to this one. Nope. Nope. One more over one more over. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the, the point of this is that once again, I, I wanted, I wanted to demonstrate that what you're seeing within the Irish government, what you're seeing within the Irish police force, what you're seeing within your more left-leaning media outlets like the BBC and the guardian is kind of this push that this is fueled by the far right. And that this is, this is motivated by anti-immigration, which is rooted in racism. Right. And so now things like Irish lives matter are seen as a racist slogan. Now, keep in mind, can a racist spray paint on a building? Irish lives matter. Sure. The question is, is, does that make the statement racist? And that's the problem that we're going to get into. Let's look at the, uh, the New York post article, because this is the article where they took a different approach. Scroll up to the very, the, the headline first. I want you guys to see this. So the headline in this article is blame Ireland's migrant surge, not right wingers for Dublin riots. So obviously this comes from uh, Theo McDonald. He's going to make, he's going to provide the, the opposite, you know, opinion here, the opposite perspective here. And, and I want to make sure everyone knows something here right now. I'm still analyzing all of this. I don't know if this guy's right. I just want to read his article and see what he actually has to say because I don't buy what's coming from the BBC and The Guardian. Go ahead and scroll down here. Okay, Dublin. In the 12 months leading up to April this year, 141,600 immigrants landed in Ireland. The Irish population has increased by more than 2%, and this provides important context for American audiences. If the U.S. had similar immigration, it would mean 9 million extra people. So one of the problems that we get into when you live in a, in a larger country like the United States, where we have over 300 million people, is that we will see something like 141,000 and we're like, okay, yeah, that, that whatever. <laughs> that's, a, that's a medium-sized city in the, in the United States. It, it would, what's going on in Ireland right now would represent 9 million people coming into the United States in, in, a, in one year. In one year, Okay. So that puts it in context. Ireland's non-nationals comprise a whopping 20% of the population. So we're going to talk about that. The tinderbox of immigration blew up Thursday with a massive riot in Dublin following the stabbing of a number of young children outside a school near the main street. The alleged perpetrator is foreign born, but still a citizen. Again, that was the uh, Algerian um, who's an Irish citizen. The riots uh, have so far led to more than 30 arrests and a number of stores destroyed. Once a source of massive immigration in the United States, the Emerald Isle is now the destination choice for Ukrainian refugees and other nationalites seeking a better life and better welfare entitlements. This is the other thing that we're going to get to on this. This is not just they picked Ireland because because it's pretty and green, right? They picked it because of entitlement programs. Following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Ireland had a surge of 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. Ukrainian refugees received more than $200 a week from the Irish state, the most generous supplement provided by any European country. It was interesting because Christian and I were looking at this and saying, wait a second, why would Ireland be taking in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees? Do you know how many European countries you have to go beyond? I mean, the only European country further west than Ireland is Iceland. Right. Like you, you have, you have to go through like 12 countries before you get to Ireland. 
So why do they have a hundred that? Well, it might have something to do with the, both the government's policy, but also generous welfare payments. Last year, more than 13,000 people from non-Ukrainian origin entered Ireland, a 400% spike over 2021. A large portion of new applicants hail from Georgia, a country deemed safe by Georgia's ambassador in Dublin. This has turned an already explosive housing shortage into a catastrophe. So just like you constantly hear people talking about a shortage of affordable housing within the United States, well, they're having similar issues within Ireland. All these factors culminated in the horrific riots this week as hundreds of inner city residents torched the streets in what the Prime Minister Leo Vardikar described as huge destruction by a riotous mob. Buses, rail carriages, and police cars were burned alongside an orgy of destruction and looting. Dublin's fair city where the girls are so pretty as the famous Irish band the Dubliners proclaimed was turned on its head as a footlocker and several other stores were burned and raided. Rioters even hijacked a bus for reckless joyriding. Police chiefs have been quick to blame far right anti-immigrant elements. Yet public frustration with homelessness, joblessness, immigration, lack of law and order, and anti-social behavior have been breeding a revolt by the urban underclass. Ireland has seen a surge in anti-immigration protests in recent years as the large influx of migrants have sparked clashes with already deprived communities and rural enclaves. That includes incidents of arson, such as deliberate torching of centers used to house migrants. Again, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't support stuff like that. I think if you're engaging in activities like that, that is violent, right? And I think it deserves to be punished. So even if I agree that there's a problem with the overall immigration policy within Ireland, that doesn't mean I believe it's justifiable to then go hurt people that haven't done anything to you personally. Ireland's authorities are now in panic about immigration, issuing last-minute promises about revoking generous welfare handouts for Ukrainians. Their bigger problem, an election looms next year and a dire shortage of houses for the young. Irish youths are swinging to the Sinn Féin opposition political party, which at one point which at one point was the political wing of the terrorist Irish Republican Army. Here's one thing that I want to point out that I think is very interesting. First of all, here's what you need to understand about Irish politics. There's only two parties in Ireland that you could probably classify as maybe like right wing or right wing populist. That would be the Irish free free party. And I think the Irish national party, guess how many seats those two parties combined have in the Irish parliament? Zero, zero, right? The only two political parties, and we're going to get to describing these here in just a minute that are classified as center, right? is, and I'm, again, I'm going to script the pronunciation, Fengal and Fein Fail, right? But Sinn Féin, so the Irish youths are swinging to Sinn Féin. Now, I want everyone to remember, BBC, The Guardian, everyone else, this is all right-wing, you know, motivated right-wing fanaticism, right-wing anti-immigrant. Hamilton, click on the next link. Sinn Féin. Okay, how is Sinn Féin's ideology described? Ooh, let me see here. Irish republicanism, democratic socialism, left-wing nationalism, center-left to left-wing, the left and the European parliament. Sinn Féin is not an extreme right-wing political party, at least not in what we would consider to be the American sense. Right, So when you are hearing this, keep in mind that we've got a report here talking about them swinging to Sinn Féin. They're democratic socialists. And the reason why I'm pointing this out 
is not because there aren't other Irish people that probably associate themselves with either the Irish Free Party or the Irish National Party. It's the idea that once again, what the left does is when they don't like something, they tend to blanket everything with a particular ideological approach. It's all far right. It's all far right. It's all extremist. It's all anti-immigrant. Nobody has any legitimate concerns about anything except for us. And anybody that disagrees with us is bad and bigoted and racist and sexist and needs to be ignored and thrown in jail. Right? That seems to be the approach coming from the left. Because once again, you're oppressors. You're oppressors. So if you have a problem with something that's going on, it's probably because it's fueled by bigotry. And, and if you don't like something that's going on or something bad is happening to you, well, you deserve it because you're an oppressor. And you need to get with the program. Now let's look at the two, let's look at the two um, other parties that are again centrist. Again, you look at the center right liberal, conservative, Christian democracy, pro-European. I'm going to tell you right now, you look at the overall um, political ideology of this. This is not a conservative political party. This is not a conservative political party. Go to the next one. And this is kind of the ruling, ruling uh, coalition. Fianna Fail. Sorry, Fianna Fail. Um, again, they say center, center right. You go and you look at their ideology, and I'm sitting here struggling to find what exactly is conservative about this ideology, except that they're, they're slightly less left-wing. So apparently, if you don't want to socialize the entire economy, that makes you center right in Ireland at this point. The, the whole point is, is that there is no genuine conservative or what we would classify as conservative representation within Irish parliament right now. Ireland is considered right now to have a center right or, or a centrist government. But it's worth noting that one of the parties in the ruling coalition right now in government in Ireland is the Green Party. Is the Green Party. And, and, that, and then when you look at the composition of the Irish Parliament, and then when you look at the opposition, the opposition are explicitly left-wing socialists. Yeah. Like, like again, you have Sinn Féin, you have, like, you know, their equivalent of, like, the SDP and stuff like that. Uh, like, uh, you have all these like explicitly socialist labor party yeah. oriented, just, just explicitly left-wing parties. And so then you're like, Oh, so then that means that they have a conservative ruling coalition, right? Well, how conservative is your, is your government? If you are including the greens in your government? Yeah. yeah. Can, can you imagine? Ireland has no real right wing or even center right voice in, yeah. po in politics right now, which is why I think eventually be, Eventually, you're going to see one emerge because the opinion poll shows that it's like over 70 percent of Irish citizens want to curtail mass immigration. They do not want hundreds of thousands of people flooding into their country every single year when they're an island. Yeah. And and it's not like these people are coming to Ireland because they want to assimilate into the culture. They're not assimilating into the culture. You do not come to a country and then stab children if you've been assimilated into the culture in that country. And, and, and then the media goes out there and says, well, it was an Irish citizen that did it. Yeah, it was an Irish citizen that did it who was an Algerian who obviously is not part of the Irish culture. And by the way, was almost deported 20 years ago, but pro-mass immigration advocates managed to prevent that from happening. They left that out conveniently. Again, I, I, eventually public opinion is going to boil over. Yeah. In the form of either violence in the form of the riots that you saw or in the form of the emergence of a new explicitly conservative or right wing party, an actual conservative party that wants to curtail immigration. You saw the same thing happen in the Netherlands recently with with, you know, Gert Wilder's victory in, in the, um, the Dutch elections that recently happened. And we might get to that later in this episode. But I, I, I bring all of this up because remember the um, 
Remember the the clip that I showed you last night, Nick, of um, Dave Rubin. Yeah, and it was like a three minute long clip. Uh, for for those of you that are um, that that have the chance, go check out his channel. It's it was a three minute long clip where he was talking about. Um, what was happening in Ireland and he was playing a clip of Jordan Peterson and Peterson was, was, you know, explaining his usual thing about ordinary men and how they can be driven to do terrible things. And Ruben said at the very end of that clip, he's like, look, what's happening in Europe right now, public resentment against the mass immigration and lack of assimilation. That's the big issue. It's, it's not just mass immigration. It's, it's the lack of assimilation Yeah, and it's the importation of people that don't share the values and quite frankly, don't want to share the values that is going to boil over. And if your response is to not just ignore that public opinion, but then to mock ridicule, try to shut down, try to criminalize Mm -hmm. the expression of that legitimate outrage What's going to eventually happen is something far worse than what you're seeing right now. Well, People the, are going to be driven to extremes. Because this is this is one of the things, and we've talked about this a lot. Um, a lot of it has to do with mislabeling. And, and we've seen this used increasingly as a political tactic. It's the idea that, oh, we're going to mislabel all of this in order, not, again, not because... Obviously not because it's true, but because it provides some sort of political utility for the message that we're putting out. And you want to know, you want to know what is a, a horrible, a horrible example of mislabeling the mislabeling of meat in the United States of America. That's right. That's right. You would be shocked. You would be shocked to find out that a lot of the meat that you buy in the United States that has the American flag on it, or says that it's, it's American beef was not American beef. Nope. In fact, it can be, it can be raised somewhere else. It can be brought to the United States. And as long as it goes through a a couple of things of, you know, maybe processing or maybe going through a couple of inspections, all of a sudden it becomes American raised beef. Now, look, I think you should be able to get your beef wherever you want, but it should be properly labeled. And people that are selling it to you should be honest about what you are getting. And good ranchers is known for its honesty in giving you exactly what they tell you they're giving you. You're going to get some of the best American raised beef, poultry, pork, wild caught seafood, all of that available at Good Ranchers. If you use promo code Nick, you're going to get $10 off. You're going to get free shipping. Plus, I want to make sure you are all aware that Good Ranchers now has gift boxes. That's right. Ladies, if you're looking for something to give to the, the man in your life that is difficult to shop for, I am promising you, I'm promising you that if you, as his beautiful bride, show up with yourself and a box of Good Ranchers, that's going to be like two of his most favorite things in the world right yeah. there. You want to knock it out of the park this Christmas? Like, it, Tina, if you're watching, I know Tina's not feeling good right now, but if Tina's watching, Tina is showing up with her and a box of Good Ranchers. That's, that is what I want for Christmas. That is what I want for Christmas. My Christmas has been made right there. Oh, and, and to spend time with my children, of course. But <laughs> but that, those two, and that too. <laughs> but listen, go to Good Ranchers, goodranchers.com right now. You Promo code Nick, $10 off, free shipping. Also check out their gift boxes as well. Um, and, and again, we, we really, we love Good Ranchers because look, they take a risk when they advertise with someone like us because we talk about controversial issues and we talk about it from a perspective that quite frankly doesn't get shared by most of the mainstream media. So if you want to support us, you can also do that by supporting yourself by buying very, very good quality meat over at goodranchers.com. Okay, let's get, let's get back to this. First of all, I want to thank somebody. They, connect, they corrected my pronunciation and they did so in a way that I can understand. Oh, man, I'm trying to find it now in the comments section. But whoever, whoever did it was, was it Fine Fall and 
or Fana Fall and Fana Gale, I think is what he said. So again, I'm, I'm going to try to get that right in the future. Um, but yeah, that, to, to Christian's point, this is what you're seeing is that you've had a lot of political parties and you've had a lot of political institutions stand up claiming to represent a particular perspective or worldview. And then once they get into power, lo and behold, they don't. Lo and behold, the most important thing becomes holding on to power and they're willing to make any sort of compromise. They're willing to make any sort of alliances in order to do that. And then they immediately resort to demonizing whoever they disagree with. Now, some of you watching like, well, Nick, that's rich coming from you. You know, aren't you demonizing the left? I am telling you again, I'm not misrepresenting what the left believes, right? I don't believe I'm doing that. Um, I, I can sit here and I've actually had conversations with people before where I said, look, I am willing to sit here right now and and express left-wing ideology in a way that you would find convincing? Would you be able to express right-wing ideology in a way that I would find convincing? And they said, no. They're like, I don't think I could do that. I'm like, well, then maybe stop accusing me that I don't know what the two parties believe or what I don't know these different ideological you know, philosophies represent. What I'm saying is that when I'm reading off of BBC and I'm reading off what this police chief is saying, and now just in case anybody thought I was being a little bit too mean, let's go to the YouTube video here. Because speaking of the alliance with the Green Party, we're going to listen to what this Irish senator says right here. Right? This is an Irish senator from the Green Party, part of the ruling coalition, right? Because a lot of people, oh, this Green Party, they don't really have any seats. They are part of the governing coalition in Ireland. Let's hear what she has to say. When you think about it, all law, all legislation is about the restriction of freedom. That's exactly what we're doing here, is we are restricting freedom, but we're doing it for the common good. You will see throughout our constitution, yes, you have rights, but they are restricted for the common good. Everything needs to be balanced. And if your views on other people's identities go to make their lives unsafe, insecure, and cause them such deep discomfort that they cannot live in peace, then I believe that it is our job as legislators to restrict those freedoms for the common good. Pause. How uncomfortable is it to be stabbed? Yeah. I don't know. Apparently, apparently not very much. Um, awesome. Now we get to watch Kings and Generals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This popped up. Um, um, yeah. Here, here's what I'm going to say on that. Here's, here's what I also find interesting, right? You know, you know, five people stabbed in Dublin, Irish uh, riot over a lack of government response, uh, trans people hardest hit right? like that. Like all of a sudden we're, we're looking at, we're looking at legislation now in Ireland, which is gear, which, which ostensibly is to prevent hate speech. All right. And now hate speech is not just around the immigration issue, but now it's also, if you disagree with trans ideology, apparently you're, you're also now guilty of hate speech. Now you notice how they factor that in, right? You notice the definition that they use. What she says is, well, no, no. If, if you, if your thoughts or your speech on other people's identity causes them such discomfort that they can't live in peace. What is the objective legal standard for that out of curiosity? What is the objective legal standard for that? Let's go ahead and go to the uh, Fox news article just to the left of the nope, next. There we go. That one. All right. Ireland, Ireland's government is newly pushing an anti-hate speech law in the wake of the riots that came in response to the stabbing of a woman and three children outside a primary school in Dublin. Language being proposed is, sorry, it was four people, not five. Language being proposed as a law in Ireland means this could literally happen to you for having a meme on your phone. And then this was a, a tweet by Elon Musk. Ireland was trending on Musk's X Monday as text uh, circulated the bill targeting any offense of preparing or possessing material likely to incite violence or hatred against persons 
persons on account of their protected characteristics. Scroll down. Protected characteristics listed in the bill include national or ethnic origin as well as transgender and a gender other than those of male and female. According to many users, the legislation was kept intentionally vague and suggests police could be jailed for having certain memes saved to their phones or for merely being found in possession of books or videos deemed politically offensive. Okay. I'm going to give you an example that I experienced of this to just kind of illustrate a larger point here of what happens when politicians resort to vague language when they are about to authorize government force and coercion. I was sitting next to a a delegate. We were sitting in a subcommittee together. And this was a delegate that I did not agree with, but I I respected her and and I do respect her. And she had a bill and she said, Nick, I'm, I'm going to recommend, it wasn't a bill. She said, I'm going to recommend a rules change. I'm like, okay, what's, what's the rules change that you're, you're going to recommend? She goes, I'm going to say that if you have a concealed carry permit, you're, you're not, or you're not allowed to have a firearm in the Capitol, even if you have a concealed carry permit. And she goes, I, I think you would support that, Nick. I said, well, I, I think you're wrong on that because <laughs> I've met me um, and, I, and I would not support that. And she goes, well, Nick, you know, because we have a gallery, you can come in and you can watch the Virginia House of Delegates meet. We have a gallery that sits above us. She goes, you know, Nick, as a, as a combat veteran, that you never want the enemy behind you with a gun on the high ground. And I said, well, I think the difference here is I don't see my constituents as my enemies. And she goes, wait a second, Nick, that's, that's not fair. I said, well, no, again, you're passing a law that, or you're, you're recommending a rule that will apply to everybody to include me, by the way, but it'll apply to everybody. So yeah, you, you are depriving my constituents of the ability to come if they still want to conceal carry in order to protect themselves. And she said, well, Nick, do you honestly believe that your right to have a firearm supersedes another person's right to feel safe? And I remember looking at her because again, I, I liked her. I respect her. I said, I don't think you want to use that argument. And she goes, why not? Why don't I want to use that argument? I said, well, do you have, you're saying that people have a right to feel safe. She goes, yes. I said, okay, great. Then presumably I have a right to feel safe. She goes, yes. I said, cool. I only feel safe if I get to have a frame flamethrower, right? And if I don't get to have a flamethrower, then you are now infringing on my right to feel safe. Do, is that the argument you want to make? She goes, no. I said, obviously, I don't want to have a flamethrower. The point I'm trying to make is that when you use this kind of vague language, a right to feel safe, how do I properly and legally determine whether or not you reasonably feel safe? And then what am I supposed to do in order to accommodate your need to feel safe? See, in this case, we have an Irish politician getting up there saying something that just sounds so nice, as long as you know nothing about how it's actually going to be enforced. Right? You're not allowed to say anything which causes somebody such extreme discomfort that they can't leave in peace. Guess what? I can't monitor what, what makes you feel safe. I can't monitor what makes you, what causes you to feel uh, extreme discomfort. And in fact, what I've now done as a legislator, which she would have done as a legislator is she would have incentivized you. Well, gosh, how, how do we, how do we, how do we effectively and legally determine whether or not you felt extreme discomfort? Should, should we just believe everybody that says they felt extreme discomfort? Yeah, I, yep, yep, that's right, Your Honor. I felt extreme discomfort and I was unable to live in peace. Okay, great. If we want to use that logic, well then, Senator, have I got news for you? Guess what makes me feel extreme discomfort and makes it impossible for me to live in peace? Authoritarian politicians arbitrarily taking away rights in order to fuel their political demagoguery. Gosh, so I guess you can't be in the legislature anymore since that's kind of what you do. 
right? If we're going to carry this out to its logical conclusion, then let's do it because that's what that leads to. Unless, of course, we'd all like to be rational adults once again. But apparently that's not in the cards. So what we're talking about now is not only criminalizing speech, it's creating this broad classification of hate speech. And then in addition to that, it's saying that if you're just in possession of something, that that right there is criminal. Now, here's what they're going to say. Here's what they're going to tell you. Oh, well, of course, of course, nobody wants to arrest you simply because you had a funny meme on your phone. Yeah, until they do, until they want to add additional charges to you, until they've decided that, well, you're not a protester, you're a writer. And so now we're going we're gonna to come over here and we're going to question you. Now, you weren't rioting. Maybe you were just protesting. But now we're going to question you. And then you say something I don't like. Or, or you have a sign I don't like, or you have something on your phone I don't like. Well, now all of a sudden, well, gee, does that fall within the, does that fall within the definition of hate speech? I think it does. All right, turn around, put your hands behind your back. Are, are you going to tell me I'm crazy? Are you going to tell me this doesn't happen? They're arresting people in Great Britain right now for praying quietly in front of abortion clinics. At the same time that hundreds of thousands of pro-Hamas protesters have taken over the streets. And by the way, you want to talk about vandalization and rioting and stuff like that. They've vandalized war memorials. They've they vandalized like World War One monuments, World War Two monuments like the hundred. And, and when I say hundreds of thousands, there was one. In fact, I just retweeted a tweet to, to prove it. There was one day in, in um, uh, last month where there was over 100,000 in one day marching through London in support of, literally in support of Hamas. Mm -hmm. People, and, and these were not people saying, calling for a ceasefire. These weren't the, the woke college students that were calling for a ceasefire. These were people chanting from the river to the sea, right? Like, like we saw the clips of, you know, people saying things like gas the Jews and stuff like that yeah. in, in oh, these crowds, oh. hundreds of thousands. I, I can, I can show you the comments on my Instagram page. I can show you the direct messages that not only myself and my wife were getting. And what did the police do in response? Nothing. In fact, the police protect these people as they're marching down the streets. So you can come from the Middle East. You can come from North Africa. You can immigrate to Great Britain, to either Ireland or the UK. You can pray in public, you can march in public, you can you can practice your faith in public, and you can go even further than that. You can go out there and you can cheerlead for a bunch of murdering, bloodthirsty terrorists that massacred a bunch of innocent children in October, and you can get police protection for it. And if anybody protests against you, if anybody rises any sort of questions about it, if anybody has any sort of objections to you doing anything, they're the bad guys because they're being racist for yeah. doing so. Yeah. And then the response from native-born or, or just even even if they're not native-born, non-radical immigrants, anybody in Ireland that's not a lunatic, if they, if they spray paint Irish Lives Matter on a dumpster, they're considered guilty of a hate crime. But if you desecrate a war monument in pursuit of you protesting Hamas, you get police protection. At some point, I, I, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be really surprised at what will happen in the future. I'm not. No. I'm not going to be surprised. Well, and, and that's and that's the thing. Like we've repeatedly we have repeatedly said on this show, we don't want it to go the direction it is going to go. But if you keep doing this, I'm not going to be able to stop it. Because that's always that's always the fascinating thing too is I, I I've seen people from the left look, Nick, you're inciting hatred. You're inciting violence. No, I'm trying to prevent it. I'm trying to prevent it. 
But that's really difficult to do when the left is able to do, essentially, it, it feels like, all right, I'm not saying literally they get to do whatever they want. It feels like to a lot of us, the left gets to do whatever they want. Riot, loot, burn things down, spray paint, desecrate war memorials, you know, do whatever they want, set up autonomous zones in Seattle and Portland. And the end result is, well, we just got to give them their space and, you know, they're upset and they're, you know, this is what happens when you rally against injustice. You know, this is all part of decolonization. And then, and then when you start to see even the, the simplest manifestation of it on the right, the response is, this is the biggest threat to democracy since 9-11. This is the biggest threat to democracy since the Civil War. This is the biggest threat to democracy ever. These are all fueled by nothing more than chaos and hate and, and fury. And, and gosh, there, there couldn't be any reason why this is manifesting itself in this way. And I say this as somebody that will look, I will be happy to look at the January 6th protester who actually violated the law or the Irish protester who burned down a footlocker. And I will say what you did was wrong and it's counterproductive. But I can't get my colleague on the left to do the same thing when it's Seattle or Portland. And you never will. That, 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 that's the thing. You, you will never get those people to be consistent. Being inconsistent is part of the ideology. I've yeah. brought this up before. Oh, it's yeah. actually a strength, yeah. not it's, a weakness. So It's a feature, not out, a bug. Pointing out the hypocrisy of the left does about as much good as pointing out the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church in the 13th century. Like, it, it, you don't have any sort of power. They do. Right. You know, they control all the institutions and, and, and you don't. I mean, what you need in that point is a reformation. Right. But so pointing out hypocrisy from the left is is a complete waste of time. Right. Yeah. I remember I remember I joked with you once, like, here's how to be a Republican politician in the modern era. <laughs> Get elected. The left does something crazy. And then you point out, wow, imagine if the roles were reversed and then you do nothing after that point. Right. Yeah. You run on. Imagine if the roles were reversed. And that's the extent of your pushback against the left. Increasingly, people who are conservatives like the base is getting frustrated at the fact that, OK, great, you've identified hypocrisy. 18 million times. What are you going to do about the hypocrisy? Yeah. I don't need you to identify it anymore. I'm living through it. Yeah. And the response, I mean, think about what's happening in Ireland with, with these people. They're seeing the hypocrisy, right? They're seeing the absolute impunity through which radicals can, can protest in support of Hamas. But the second that an Algerian stabs a bunch of children, oh, the, the real conversation needs to be had about these racist bigots that are anti-immigrant. No, how about we have a conversation about radicalized people that aren't assimilated into the culture massacring people in my country? How about we have a conversation about that? At, at some point, the the public anger is going to boil over. Yeah. And you're, you're already seeing signs of this all across Europe, right? Like, I, I like, let's talk about the the Netherlands briefly. They had an election. Gert Wilder's party won overwhelmingly, and he was considered a fringe element just a few years ago. Wilders has been talking since I think like 2004 about this. He left the the center-right party that traditionally has governed the Netherlands for a couple of reasons. One was over issues with immigration. The other one was over the EU. He didn't want to hand over sovereignty to the EU, and he objected to Turkey's entry into the EU because he argued that what was going on in Turkey at the time, and history has vindicated him completely, that Turkey was moving in an authoritarian, Islamicist, direction which is contrary to the to the tradition of turkey post world war one where turkey 
for a long time was a secular state or at least governed by secular values. And then people like Erdogan came into power and leveraged Islamicism in order to cement their own rule. And, you know, Wilders brought up that there's a big threat of letting a country that's slipping into this totalitarian ideology into the European Union. And he was called a racist for doing it. And then he also pointed out there's a big threat with handing over our country's sovereignty to a bunch of bureaucrats in Brussels that are unelected. And he was called a radical right wing extremist for that. But guess what? He kept talking about this for what? Almost 20 years now. And it's finally paid off. He's gone from being fringe. Nobody wanted to talk about him. He was radioactive to this guy might become the next prime minister of this country now. Yeah. And you're seeing the same thing in France. There was a stabbing recently where I, I'm pretty sure it was Algerians as well. I can't remember exactly what country, but I'm pretty sure they were Algerians where th there was a gang of migrants that walked into a public space in um, a, a small town in France. This was just a few days ago and said something like, we're here to stab a bunch of white children. And they it literally explicitly said yeah. that. That is that is a verbatim quote. And lo and behold, they stabbed a bunch of people. And then the response from people in France was taking to the streets. And, and in France, they always take to the streets for yeah. everything, right? Yeah. You know, the, the, you know, the, the- I can't retire at 26. <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, it's, it's kind of par for the course there, but the responses to the same thing in France that like, we've had enough of this. Yeah. And you're seeing the same thing now in Spain where people are taking the streets and chanting things like Spain is a Christian country, not a Muslim country. They're also protesting for the fact that the ruling socialist government in Spain struck a deal with the devil, with the Catalonian secessionists yeah. and pardoned a bunch of people that tried to break away Catalonia a few years ago in exchange for them voting in the socialists back into power again, Did despite it? the fact that they lost the last election that yeah. was held over the summer. Well, didn't you say Spain just, um, what do they do? They, just outlaw they outlawed the rosary in public in Spain. I'm pretty sure this is like, I'm, I'm getting flashbacks to July, 1936 right now. Like, That's, like, I mean, we, you and I have talked about this yeah. privately, like the lead up to the Spanish civil war, some of the stuff that the ruling government did. I remember I read off to you like a list yeah. of things and you were like, Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, there you go. Like yeah. it, it, and one of the things was, was direct attacks on religion and not just saying, we just want to separate state and church. Yeah. No, like trying to shut down the public displays of religion yeah. from people that wanted to display it. Again, at some point you're, you're going to get a, a huge, huge backlash yeah. and it's not going to be pretty, unfortunately, because the people who, who had reasonable concerns, reasonable complaints, these are not fascists. These yeah. are not bigots. Yeah. If, if you're objecting to the fact that, that no, you, if you're coming to my country, you should assimilate yeah. to my country's history and culture yeah. and values. I shouldn't be forced to conform to, to your beliefs. If you're coming to my country, yeah. you should be coming to my country because you want to be a part of my country, yeah. not because you want to take over my country. Well, let's put that's that not in, an unreasonable position. And for anyone that's like, Oh, well, well that's kind of harsh. Like, okay, great. So if I, I've been, I've been to several other countries, I have never once, I've never once Imagine myself in a position to tell those countries, well, if I move here, you need to cater to what I want. Like that, that didn't, that never occurred to me. I always looked at myself as I am a guest in your country. And so my obligation is to understand the, the different rules, the different cultural norms, the different laws in order to be able to navigate and to be able to successfully navigate myself in your, well, in your country. Now, if I visited a country where I thought to myself, my gosh, this is so wonderful. I would love to be a part of this. It would be because I wanted to be a part of it. 
But what we're starting to see now is, and again, I, I understand the plight of refugees. I really do. But what I don't understand, what I don't understand from, from any country is this idea that there's nothing about our country that makes us so unique that we would want to preserve it and ensure that people that are coming to the country also want to be a part of it, especially if they're going to come to the country and actually have a say in how it's governed. But, but it's, it's this, and, and here's what I think it comes down to. And, and we've, we've discussed this before and we're going to discuss it a lot more in the future. I don't know. I don't know how the left feels in Ireland, although I, I think I can guess because I, I think there is a, I think there's a trend. I think the thing that unifies most left wing parties is not any sort of, and let me be careful when I say this, I want to be precise in my language. I think the fundamental thing that motivates leftist politics and most leftist political parties is not any sort of deep commitment or love for their country's own cultural heritage, history, or anything of that nature. I think what motivates most leftist parties is Marxist ideology. And Marxist ideology doesn't care about your cultural history. It doesn't care about your cultural institutions. What it cares about is the revolution. What it cares about is upending whatever it is that you currently have and replacing it with a dictatorship of the proletariat. That's what it cares about. Insofar as you have cultural institutions, which can be used or co-opt in order to achieve that purpose, they will be happy to work with it for a time. And insofar as you have cultural institutions or organizations or traditions, which are antithetical to it, they will work to undermine, destroy, and remove them. And they don't feel any compunction about this because after all, they're on the right side of history. They're sticking up for the, whatever it is, the proletariat, the oppressed at the expense of the oppressors. And if you disagree with them, your only possible motivation is because you must be an oppressor. And so I'm no longer surprised when I run into somebody that believes in that sort of left-wing ideology when, when all of a sudden they say things or do things or propose things which fall way outside, which are antithetical to what it would mean to the American experiment. And I think more and more people in other countries are coming to the same conclusion that the leftists in Ireland are not all that concerned about Ireland. They're not all that concerned about the UK, the Netherlands, Spain, Germany, wherever it may be. They're not all concerned about the cultural heritage and the things that make that culture unique and preserve it, especially if the things which make it unique and preserve it stand in the way of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And I don't, I don't think I'm being crazy to say that. I think there's ample evidence to demonstrate that that is 100% true. The, the, the tragedy in all of this is that eventually the, these people living in, and by the way, it's not just happening in Spain. It's not just happening in France. It's not just happening in Ireland. It's not just happening in the Netherlands. It's happening all across Europe. We know that it's happening in the UK right now, right? Like, for example, the Labour Party, the Labour Party is currently to the right of the UK Conservative Party. Yeah. That is not an exaggerated statement, by the way. Now, the Labour Party right now is probably as far right as it can ever possibly go, but it is... At, like if you look at the range of, of ideological possibilities for both parties, like as far yeah. left, as far right as they can reasonably go within the context of the Overton window, the Labour Party right now is probably about as far right as it can reasonably be 
in, in, in this day and age. And the UK Conservative Party is probably about as far left right now as it reasonably could be in this day and age, although it keeps moving to the left with each passing day. And when you look at where they both are right now, you could absolutely make the argument that the Labour Party is currently to the right of the Conservatives. Now, that window overlap where yeah. the is very small. And if, if Labour actually won an election, I do not expect them to, to necessarily no. govern to the right of the Conservatives. No, of but not. it is worth pointing out right now that Labour is openly campaigning on cutting the number of migrants coming to the UK down to 200,000 a year. Yeah. Right now, the number of migrants coming to the UK is like north of 600,000 a year. Yeah right now and well and europe's doing this in part because they have their own declining birth rates but but you know what's incredible is that the response from these politicians is not how do we make it easier for people to get married no. get a house start yeah. a family create a legacy of their own how, how do we make more germans how do we make more you know french how do we make more brits no, the response is, how do we import more foreigners who don't share our values, don't share our culture, don't share our history, and quite frankly, don't want to? Yeah. That's the response. How about you make it easier for people to afford a house? How about you make it easier for people to get married and start a family of their own, rather than simply say, the only response to a declining birth rate in my country is to import people that share none of the history and culture and values of this country. And then when people bring up well, that sounds like a problem. Why are you replacing the native population? Why are you replacing Germans with Turks mm -hmm. or Syrians? Then the response is, you're a right-wing conspiracy theorist, the great replacement theory. That's the most extreme thing out there is to tout that. Okay, so simultaneously, it's extreme to tout something that you're bragging about. It's not happening. I'm a radical right-wing extremist for bringing up that it's happening. But simultaneously, when you're talking about it, it is happening and it's a good thing. Oh, that's what yeah, it's, the it's, mass gaslighting at some point is going to reach critical mass and people are going to have enough of it. And the tragedy in all of this is that eventually people are going to come to the conclusion that, you know what, this is a battle between civilizations. And if you win leftists, if all the left wing socialist open borders parties that don't share our values, don't share our cultures, want to import people that don't share our values and cultures. And even if they don't have the ability to import our values and cultures, they're going to corrupt our institutions and corrupt the education system in order to indoctrinate the next generation of people in my country to hate my country. All in the name of, of everything that we've talked about, intersectionalism, Equity. wokeism, all that stuff, right? It is a battle of civilizations. And if you people win on the left, it is the death of Western civilization. And if I win, we can at least save Western civilization. I will do anything in order to win at that point. If, if, if that is what the option is, there's going to be a lot of people in Europe that are going to come to that conclusion, unfortunately. And what will happen at that point is, is going to be a complete tragedy. Well, here's the other thing I'll say, because I want to... <laughs> This is one as we as we dive into this and we look at what's going on. There, there's there's this automatic, and 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 a largely it's been created by the sort of narrative that takes place. There's this automatic us them between those people that were born in a particular country versus immigrants, and and here's here's what I want to make very clear. I don't have any problem. I'm going to speak for the United States. I don't have any problem with any person who lives anywhere in the world, no matter what culture they come from immigrating to the United States provided that they want to be a part of the United States and what that means, what that experiment means. And I don't need them to like the same food as I do. I don't need them to dress the same way that I do. I, I don't even need them to, to worship the same God that I do, but there does need to be some fundamental commitment 
to those underlying principles which has made the United States unique. And I certainly don't think it is unreasonable for me to have that standard when that standard would have been applied to me if I was immigrating to the other country. And all of us are tired of being told there's something wrong with us for wanting that. Because ultimately, it's not about your skin color. Again, I'll speak for the United States. What makes the United States so beautiful is that regardless of your skin color, regardless of your, 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 your economic situation, regardless of who your parents were, the beauty of the United States was always you could come to the United States, you could become an American, you could build something. Your government wasn't going to sit there and oppress you and rob you of it. It was going to be yours. And what we asked for in return was just a, a modicum of degree of loyalty to the very principles and systems which made that possible. Because in so many places in the world, it isn't possible. There's always a political elite or someone that is going to take from you or punish you if you don't say or do or behave in the way that they want you to. And guess what? Here it is. Here it is. And if you wanted evidence on whether or not this is happening within the United States as well, go to the last article up here. I want to bring this up. Crisis in New York, 94-year-old vet struggles to move on after nursing home evicts him and replaced by migrants. Now, here's what happened. Here's what happened. There was, a, there was an organization that was providing um, nursing homes for elderly people, and they had put out notices months ago that it was going to close down. They were going to close down. And so people needed to find where they were going to move next. And this, this gentleman who had lived there for a while um, – didn't know where he was going to move. And so his, his daughter ended up taking him in because he had moved over to another nursing home. It just wasn't really working out. And so he went back and, and lived with his daughter. But the whole idea was, is that oh, the building's going to be sold or the building or the company's going to be sold or the building's going to be sold or it's going to be torn, whatever it was, but there was some reason why they couldn't stay. So they had to move. So what happened? Well, they moved them all out. And then New York is currently dealing with an immigration crisis. Why is it dealing with that immigration crisis? Well, because the people who live in New York, have consistently voted for politicians which push sanctuary citizens and effectively open border policies. And all the people that live along the border that have said for decades now, this is a problem. The people in New York were very content to call those people racists. So what did Texas do? They said, okay, fine. You want open borders? You want sanctuary cities? We're going to go ahead and bust the people up to you. And then what immediately happened in New York and Washington, D.C. and Chicago and Martha's Vineyard? They all started losing their crap. Oh, my gosh. How are we supposed to deal with this? How are we supposed? We've had over 100,000 immigrants shipped to New York in the, in the last year or two. Meanwhile, Texas is looking at them laughing like, oh, 100,000 in a year? Well, that's adorable. Is that overwhelming for you, New York City? Look at who's coming face to face with the consequences of their actions. And so what has the response been? Has the response been for the mayor of New York to say, you know what, guys, look, this, uh, we get it. We get it. Texas, Arizona, Florida, we, we get it. This is a problem. We need to fix it. No, 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 no. Apparently, it's been to kick out a bunch of people in New York City that were currently living in a nursing home and then subsidize it for the housing of people that are in the country illegally. And any reasonable human being looks at this and says, wait a second, Wait a second, this is wrong. And then they get told they're a racist. 
Okay, let me make something very clear for any leftist progressive that might be watching this, just eager to, to clip this up and show that we're racist. If you allowed a bunch of people from Norway to come into the United States illegally and then kick out a bunch of Americans who've been living in a place because the government was now going to subsidize the housing for the purpose of housing illegal immigrants from Norway, I would be just as pissed because it's wrong. It's not wrong based off of their skin color. It's wrong because this is not the way that orderly nations are supposed to conduct business. This is not the way responsible human beings are supposed to behave with respect to governing a nation. I don't have a problem with immigration. I think one of the most beautiful things you will ever see is someone who desperately wanted to come to the United States, did it correctly. I don't care what their skin color is. Did it correctly, got here, and they take that oath of office and they break down in tears because they finally get to call themselves an American. That person is my brother, that is my sister, that is my fellow citizen, that is my fellow American. Because I'll tell you this much, I got far more in common, I got far more in common with somebody who is struggling to survive and feed their family and work hard and dreams of one day coming to the United States just so they can breathe free and work and build something and their kids can be safe. I got much more in common with that person than I do some snot-nosed white liberal at Cal Berkeley that hates this country and thinks it's an oppressive racist hellhole. You want to do a one-for-one trade? Oh man, I will pay for the ticket. I will pay for the ticket. Just so nobody watches this, confuses this for racism. This is about just a basic level of shared values. Because what makes a nation a nation, what makes a country workable is a general agreed upon commitment to the very values and institutions which makes it possible for people to live in close proximity with one another, to raise their families, to engage in commerce to defend themselves and their country from people that would try to take it away. But right now, that belief by the left seems to be universally categorized as racist and bigoted. And then the moment they've got to deal with the consequences of their own actions in a place like New York City, what do they do? Do they, do they, do they have any moment of introspection? Nope. Everyone that disagrees with us is a racist and you should pay more taxes. And oh, by the way, get out, oppressor. We need to make room. Yeah, if you think if you think you're going to be able to sustain that long term, you be my guest with that reasoning. But I will tell you what, those of us who are trying to tell you right now that this is wrong, it is unworkable. And if you think you're simply going to be able to pass a law like they're currently trying to do in Ireland to shut anybody up who disagrees with you, good luck with that. Just like one of my colleagues right now who is passing, who just dropped House Bill 2 in Virginia. We're now we're going we're gonna to take away your semi-automatic rifles or pistols, provided they can have a, a magazine capacity of 20 rounds or more. You're going to take that away. You're just going to take them away. The same people that said nobody wants to. Nobody wants to take your guns. We just want common sense gun control. Nobody wants to ban free speech. We just want to have common sense rules for the public good. Well, we've all got a, we've all got a glimpse into what you consider to be the common good or the public good. And we've all got a glimpse on the the links you're willing to go to deprive otherwise free and law-abiding people 
of essential civil liberties in order to achieve your political objectives. In fact, I am fascinated that it seems to be consistent across space and time that when the left gets into power, the only way that they can keep it is by forever engaging in the diminishing of civil liberties of innocent people. That fact is not lost on me. Nick, there's a super chat that was sent um, a few minutes ago that I, I want your take on because I think it could actually go in, in a couple directions. Um, Torino says the European politicians don't realize that they are making fertile ground for racism and xenophobia. That's your point. That's the point you've been making. What are your thoughts on that? That's, that's what <laughs> I would say that that is one of the things that I think this podcast is designed to try to avoid from taking place. We don't want people, we don't want people to, to then engage in racism and xenophobia because here's the secret. They're going to make a lot of them though. No, they are. He, he, people usually are not Torino, born racist. Torino is not wrong. The, the problem is this, is that <laughs> your enemy is not someone that looks different than you. Your enemy is not someone that, that wants to live their life a little bit differently than you want to live your life. That's not your enemy. But I will say you this, my enemy is an ideology which seems to dominate on the left that suggests that what, what needs to happen in the West is, is, again, the overthrow of our institutions and the replacement with a, a Marxist style of government, which is rooted in this idea that you don't get individual liberty. It's all about group identity. This is a, I, I, don't, I don't know how bad this is in other countries, but I'll tell you what it is in, in, in the United States right now. The left, which is represented in large part by the Democratic Party of the United States, only wants to ask a couple questions about you. What's your income? What's your race? What's your sex? And what's your sexual preference? You answer those questions and they will tell you right now whether or not you're oppressed, whether or not you're an oppressor, whether or not you're a part of the coalition, or whether or not you're not a part of the coalition. There's no important questions with respect to your character. There's no important questions with respect to your dreams and ambitions. This is about group identity and group politics. And when you build a culture and society based off of group identity, what ends up happening is people outside of that group, people that are left out because they don't fall into the right group for your political power. Yeah. You better believe they start engaging in xenophobia because they have been taught. They're going to build their own coalition. They have been taught that they're bad because of their skin color. Oh, you're, you're white. You're heterosexual. Oh yeah. You're part of the oppressor class. You've seen that meme, right? That I've showed you um, with the it it, it it's a it's a co well comic slash meme of you know four quadrants, and each quadrant it shows you know somebody that's like going through school, they're entering the workforce, they're they're you know starting their first job, and it's like when they're in school or or when they're growing up, you know they're reading a book where it's like you are evil, and then they're in school and they're reciting a paper, they're you know seeing on the right whiteboard the teacher write you are evil, and then they're applying for a job. Or they're working in a job and yeah. they're, you know, writing on a paper or, or, or putting in a report and it's titled You Are Evil. And then the last clip, it's like them putting on like the stormtrooper outfit and they're like, I am evil. Yeah. Like it, it's supposed to be funny, but also dark. It's a bit dark humor. Yeah. But like there's something to be said about that. And th this is why like it really resonated with me, that clip of, of what Dave Rubin was was saying that I showed you last night where he was like, if, yeah. if these legitimate legitimate grievances are not addressed, let alone if they're if they're crushed right by the rule the powers that be that are currently ruling most of these european countries yeah the response is not going to be that this is going to just go away and people are just going to accept random stabbings from from migrants that don't want to be a part of the culture no the response is is going to be a a vicious and, and potentially even violent backlash but you know what 
it might not end in, you know, funny mustache painter man from, from Austria. It might end in something that happened, what, 1500 years ago with the collapse of the Roman empire. Yeah. I don't think that it's necessarily going to, to be guaranteed that, that, you know, Europe plunges back into fascism or some sort of like violent nationalism in response to decades of left-wing governments completely ignoring the migrant crisis. It could also end in the disintegration of Europe. I, I've got a few quotes from um, the historian Tom uh, Tom Holland, not the actor, not the Spider-Man <laughs> actor. It's a historian, Tom Holland. He's a um, pretty well-known um, uh, historian of, of the classical era, so Greece, Persia, Rome. And I've got three quotes here that I want to read off because I kind of want your take on it. Um, we did two podcasts, what, a month or two ago about Rome. And yeah. when we talked about the second one, we didn't quite talk as much about the the migratory period, right? Yeah. As much as I had wanted to. But I think that there's some really eerie similarities between what's happen, happening today and what happened at the very tail end of, of the Western Roman Empire. Holland says this, even as the late Roman Empire's urban population remained much the same since Constantine's victory at the Milvian Bridge, Recruitment among Roman citizens by the year 390 AD had plummeted to barely 15% of what it was 50 years prior. This was made all the more dire when one realizes that the Roman Empire, after Diocletian's reforms, required a standing army of at least twice the size of what it was during the Roman Golden Age under Vespasian. And then he continues to say, the attempt to replace Roman soldiers for the Federati immigrants mostly settled on Roman land. That's a big comparison yeah. with today because the Federati did not assimilate. Yeah. Led to a swift competence crisis among the ranks of the Roman army, as well as the disappearance of Roman veteran culture. Among the most shocking anecdotes are reports of Roman troops mutinying over the, quote, absurdity that Roman soldiers had to build roads and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And then he concludes with the final quote. As political, demographical, and economic factors coalesced, the Roman recruitment crisis can be understood as an existential crisis of the empire itself. Simply put, Roman citizens, rich and poor, no longer believed that a military career would be beneficial to them, nor they believed the existence of the military and the empire itself were worth any sacrifice. Yeah. There is something to be said about for centuries, the Romans were fantastic assimilators, right? They assimilated the entire Italian peninsula. They turned everybody in it. Um, it wasn't at first, it wasn't like everybody was Roman in the Italian peninsula. There were yeah. Etruscans, there were Greeks in the South. There were the Samnites, right? They assimilated the Italian peninsula. They assimilated Spain. They assimilated North Africa. They assimilated Greece. The Romans were able to conquer the Mediterranean world, not just because they conquered and subjugated it, but because they turned people into Romans. Yeah. But then when you look at the tail end of the empire, when you look in the last hundred years between the battle of Adrianople and, and you know, the, the deposing of Romulus Augustulus, what you see in that last century is a complete breakdown in the ability of the Roman state to assimilate foreign cultures. Yeah. And particularly after the crossing of the Rhine in the early 400s, where you saw in a very short amount of time, entire nations of German tribes moving into Gaul. The, and you also saw the same thing across the Danube in the Eastern Empire. This yeah. is what led to Adrianople, yeah. right? With the Gothic the Wars. Yeah. And the, the response from the Romans 
was was not attempts to assimilate the Germanic tribes moving in. They couldn't. There were too many of them. The response from the Romans was to settle the German tribes as federati within the empire. But the problem with that is you've now created a state within a state. Yeah. And yes, you can have the Catalonian plains. You might be able to ally them temporarily to, buy, to fight back against Attila. But long term, that spelled doom for the Roman Empire because eventually what happened was is that the Federati were not Federati. They became independent kingdoms. Yeah. And, and so you had the emergence of the Visigoths and the Vandals and, and the Ostrogoths and all of these different tribes that, that they didn't feel a need to become part of the Roman state. They carved out their own states yeah. and the empire disintegrated. And the response from the native eth ethnic Italians and other cultural Romans, even if they weren't ethnic Italians, yeah, right? Yeah. The, the people that identified as being part of the empire in the tail end of, of in the last hundred years of the empire, increasingly people thought, what's the point of this? There, yeah. there, nobody wanted to join the military because they didn't think the empire was worth fighting for. Yeah. Nobody, nobody believed in the glory of Rome anymore. There once was a dream and yeah. the dream was dead a yeah. hundred years or at least 50 years before the empire itself actually finally collapsed. Yeah. And that is a potential direction that I see. I, I don't see Europe as guaranteed to go in this violent extremist direction in response to the legitimate grievances being ignored. I also think that there's a chance that Europe could go the way of the Western Roman empire. If this isn't, if this isn't addressed, yeah. there's three options for the future. And unfortunately I think only one of them is a positive one. Well, I think we got a couple of super chats here. Jim Ross says Canada is a perfect example of a political group government. Doesn't matter what name they are under the ideology is the important thing. However, these same people exempt themselves from these effects. The governed live with it. No, that's one thing that if you, if you, like our last episode where we talked about Javier Millet, uh, one of the biggest things that he ran on down there was the idea that the party is over for the politicians, that the the special exemptions, the privileges, um, the the pomp associated with with being an elected official, that that's gone. Um, and he was very adamant about removing that. And because you're you're right, and I and I can tell you right now, there is a, it is um, there's this temptation when you're in public office because when you're in session, we're a part time session in Virginia. But when you're in session, you're down there, and everybody wants to come and see you and talk to you. And there's various events that you get to go to, and all these receptions they hold for you. And 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 you can get this if you are if you are even a little bit susceptible and you're not surrounding yourself with good people that keep you grounded, it could be very easy to go down to a place like Richmond and, and start to think that you are just so much, you know, so much cooler than you actually are. And, and, you know, it, it is important to take the necessary steps to, to always keep yourself grounded. But this is also the problem with what happens because as government expands, it gets ever more powerful. It starts to imagine for the participants, which is the elected officials, right? They, they start to imagine this ability to change the world in their own image and, and feel perfectly morally justified in doing so because after all, they're just trying to help people. And I mean, I don't know. I've, I've got hopes for, for Pierre in, in Canada, and I hope that happens. Happy Cappy. Thank you for the super chat. How's it going? It's going well, Happy Cappy. I actually really like this this holiday season time. It's it's good. It's going well. Thanks for being here, man. Uh, Andrea Viola, Americans have no one to blame but themselves for the state of this country. Americans have tolerated too much for too long, and now they are shocked. Andrea, you are 100% correct. There's a, a quote by... Um, 
Oh gosh, who who was the? Uh, he was kind of a political satirist and, and social commentator. Um, he goes, democracy is the belief that the people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. H.L. Mencken. H.L. Mencken. Yeah, yeah. Democracy is the belief that the people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. Well, and and now they kind of are. And this is also the problem that Alexis de Tocqueville talked about in um, Democracy in America. And it and it's been something Plato talked about this, right? There's no secret. But it was the idea that that democracy. And yes, I know we're a constitutional republic, but we use democratic processes. The idea was is democracy kills itself the moment that people recognize that they can vote for themselves special privileges, benefits, and and riches from the public treasury. And that's essentially what we have. The, the larger a political party grows off of creating dependency. And I don't mean just dependency within the welfare state. I also mean dependency within corporations, Right, you you see this all the time right now. The corporate America is not a bunch of right wing, you know, is supporting. But most, uh, some of the most powerful companies in America right now are are cozied up and giving, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars to the Democratic Party. Right? It, why is that? Well, it's because there's two types of dependency. There's there's dependency for your your subsistence. And there's dependency with respect to your company and your lifestyle and everything else and regulatory capture and government subsidies. This is one of the ways that the government entices business to leave the realm of the free market and enter into more of the corporatist approach, which is fascist economic policy. And and I find it fascinating that the people in this country that scream the loudest about the threats of fascism if you really dig in deep on the sort of economic policies that they imagine, if they're not a complete Marxist, they're a fascist. I don't mean they're a fascist in the sense that they, you know, <laughs> want to invade France tomorrow. I mean, they're a fascist in the sense that they want an ever growing degree of state control and direction of the economy. They, they want an ever growing degree in, in control of, of, of state management of essential services like healthcare or education. They insist upon it, right? These are not new philosophies, and they are, in many respects, not exclusively connected to fascist economic and social policy, but you would be shocked to find the similarities that actually exist. Um, Love and Bravo Crunchy, thank you for the super chat. Two tours in Iraq made me stop caring about the glory of the U.S. empire. The way the elected officials show their utter disdain for the average American doesn't do anything to change my mind either. Here's what I'll say on that one. Um, two tours in Iraq for me caused me to, to significantly question U.S. foreign policy. It didn't cause me to question the greatness of America, um, in, in part because I, I saw it manifested in the, in the men and women I got to serve with, even under difficult circumstances, even in a, in, in a war that um, I can look back now on and say that the justification for going into Iraq was very problematic. And certainly the way that our, our overall strategy manifested itself, I think, was absurd. But that doesn't mean that there weren't good things that we were able to accomplish on a micro level as a result of that. And I'm very proud of the people I served with. And I'm, and I'm sure you feel the same way about many of the people that you served with. But it did definitely cause me to question U.S. foreign policy and the objectives of some of the people making the decisions. Because what became evident to me was that it seems that there was more political benefit to staying at war than there was to actually winning one. And the only way that makes sense is that if you don't pay any cost for actually fighting the war and you gain significant economic or, or political benefits from perpetuating them. And I think that's been the curse of a, a lot of countries throughout history. There's, there's a very cynical statement that war abroad is peace at home. And because that has played out in many respects, um, it is, it has led people to conclude from a political standpoint that that is the appropriate 
that it's an appropriate course of action, and it isn't. By the same token, we do have to figure out how to not tear each other to pieces when we're not fighting overseas. And I've always thought that one of the best ways to do that was to allow people to be able to focus not only their own personal dreams, but their dreams as part of a family or part of a a community. Um, But unfortunately for some, it it becomes the consolidation of political power um, to turn the United States into something I don't recognize. Um, Andrew Viola, uh, thank you again. First time catching a live. Love the show. You are both a blessing. Happy holidays. Hey, thank you very much. I really appreciate you you watching live. We love it when we get comments, and we love it, obviously, when we get super chats as well. It helps us to do what we do here. But um, I, I think, you know, again, it's sometimes it's difficult to do live, and, and as we go into the legislative session, I'm just we're just not going to be able to do live episodes to the same degree that we've been able to. We're still trying to figure out ways that we can uh, potentially do that. But I, we love the audience interaction. I think that's a that's one of the biggest benefits that we get from doing this live as opposed to pre-recorded is is being able to get feedback and um, and sometimes correction and and different points of perspective. So thank you very much, uh, Bjorn Wagner, Nick Freitas. When is it time to start considering the enlistment oath, uh, the enlistment oath, brother, according to the purpose of it, when does the left identify as a domestic enemy? I get asked that question, um, a lot. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, I think it's unfortunate how often I get asked it, but I, but I understand the sentiment. It's the idea that if you have a, a significant political establishment that, um, seems to be actively working to undermine the very institutions and really the very documents which found our country, that being the Constitution, and really the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. It's important to understand them as complementary documents with respect to the Declaration and the Constitution, and then also with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. But when, when, you, see, um, when you see a political party, uh, and, and I don't believe the Democratic Party has always represented this, but I, I, think, they do, I think they largely do now that I don't think has any commitment to the United States in the sense that when you read statements within the Declaration of Independence, when you read the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and when you understand that the overall governing philosophy of the United States, what makes us great is not our democracy. What, what makes the United States great was that our government was established with a very specific purpose in mind, which was unique to any other government that had ever been established up to that point. And that was the recognition that the whole purpose of the Constitution was to restrict government power. Almost every other civilization in history, when the government has been established, it has been to exercise power over its people. Now, yes, you have things like the Magna Carta, but that happened way after the fact. At our very inception, the guiding philosophy of the United States was we are going to put in so many enumerated powers and so many restrictions on government power because we recognize that a free society is one where individuals working in conjunction as families, as members of a community, as members of a company, get to come together and engage in voluntary cooperation and competition in a peaceful environment in order to direct their lives as free from government interference as possible. I don't know a single person on the left right now. I don't know a single one of my colleagues, some of whom I, I, I like as, as people. I don't know a single one of them that is dedicated to that principle anymore. 
They honestly believe that the way that individuals are going to be able to live their lives is if the government is the one that it's coming in and providing for them. It's no longer the pursuit of happiness. It is the provision of happiness. And when the government is responsible for providing happiness, since it doesn't create any of its own resources, it has to take it from others. And so if the provision of one person's happiness comes at the expense of another person's happiness, rights, freedoms, property, or liberty, don't be surprised when that person eventually steps in and says, wait a second, this is not a fair bargain anymore. And so I don't know when that point comes, but I will tell you this much. I will tell you this much if it provides any indication of where my own mindset is. If HB2 passes in Virginia, I will not comply. If HB2B, if HB2 passes in Virginia, I will not comply. Explain what that bill is again. HB2 makes it illegal to own a whole host of semi-automatic pistols and rifles. That's what it does. Now, it, it carries it under the definition of an assault rifle, but that definition is so broad as to include any number of things which are currently legally owned by citizens. And guess what? That bill was brought by Delegate Dan Helmer, who also served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was an intel officer, I believe. But this is where we're at. And I will tell you right now, you can pass that law all you want. I'm not complying. I'm not complying because what it represents to me is an active effort on behalf of a political party to disarm me. I have not done anything wrong with my firearms. I have not hurt anyone with my firearms. In fact, <laughs> for a good portion of my adult life, I was protecting people with them. And I continue to protect them today because I protect my own family with them. And I would use them for the protection of others. And if I'm the sort of person that you're going to use and expend government resources, because guess what? You know what they use to confiscate guns? Guns. They're not against firearms. They just don't want you to have them. They want to have them. And I'm skeptical of anybody that says, no, 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 we're going to take away any means that you have, any reasonable means that you have to be able to provide for your own security, your family's security. And you're now going to have to rely entirely on us. Now I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. So you can pass that bill. We'll see what happens when you try to enforce it. And I'm not threatening violence, but I am saying non-compliance. I'm not doing it. All right. I think that's all we got for the uh, super chats. I want to thank everybody here. And, and I, and I want to finish up with this because I, I want to hammer this point home one more time uh, because I think it's important to be understood. And I, and I don't want to be one of the things I hate. I, I really appreciate when Jordan Peterson talks about the idea of using precise language. And, and um, I remember when he first kind of explained why that was so important, it really resonated with me because I don't like being misunderstood. And I certainly don't like saying things in a way that could be easily misunderstood because one of the things that I recognize about what we do is that you are not obligated to understand our intention. You're only obligated to reasonably interpret what we say. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to make our position very, very clear so that any sort of misrepresentation of it must be deliberate because we've taken every every opportunity possible to make sure that what we believe is crystal clear to everyone that's listening or watching. So I'm going to finish it off with this. Like I said before, I'm not anti-immigrant and I certainly don't judge someone immigrating in the United States based off of something as superficial as their skin color. I want to live with people and I want to share a country with people and a community with people that believe in certain basic fundamental principles, individual liberty, private property rights, the right to be able to live your life the way that you choose, provided that you don't infringe on the rights of others. A, a, an economy which believes in free market principles, genuine free market principles, where you're able to use your talents 
your property the way that you choose in voluntary cooperation with others in order to improve your life and the life of your family. That's what I want. That's what I want. You don't have to like the same foods. You don't like the same dress. You don't like to, we, we can have different views on, on different topics. You can root for different teams. You can worship differently than I do. That's all I'm looking for. And if you're the sort of person that wants that to be the sort of community, the sort of country that you live in, well, then I think the United States should be opening and welcoming to you. If, however, you're coming to the United States because you want the benefits and the blessings that come with the liberty with no intention of actually holding up and defending the very institutions and ideas which make it possible, no, I don't want you here. I don't care what skin color you are. I would gladly trade. I would gladly trade all of these spoiled white brats complaining about this country with people who look nothing like me that want to come here and build something and live free. That's what this is about. A shared sense of what it means to be a part of a community and a country. Because I've seen a good portion of the world. I think what we have in the United States is fundamentally beautiful. And we have not always lived up to our principles. But we have always been made better by striving for them. And anybody that wants to strive for those, I'm not your enemy, man. You're the sort of person that I want to build a country and a future with. But I'm not going to tolerate the mischaracterization of what it is that we believe And I'm certainly not going to tolerate the tearing down of something that I've fought very hard to preserve and that a lot of people that came before me fought hard to preserve. And that's why we do this. So I want to thank you all again um, very much for for joining us, for the chats, for um, the perspectives that are shared. I'm also very aware that we have an international audience. And today we had people... Um, from Ireland that were able to comment. And and I really appreciate your perspective and you, and you watching this with us. So thank you very much. Thank you also to our audio lens listeners. And once again, thank you to Good Ranchers because they help make this possible. And so if, uh, again, I always say one of the ways that you can support the show uh, is by supporting them. So you can always go to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. Uh, they're going to take a little bit off the top for you <laughs> on the on the price tag of that. Uh, but they make a great product, and we really appreciate their support for the show and what we do. So once again, thank you to everybody, um, and we'll see you next episode.